Hello, everybody. Just a quick disclaimer before this week's episode. As you know, we've been recording our episodes remotely lately due to the COVID-19 pandemic, so please excuse the slight dip in audio quality. I also wanted to give a shout out to all the nurses, doctors, and medical professionals working every day to save lives. Y'all are the real heroes, and we love you. And now, here's the show. From the beautiful city of West Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. Hey, hey, welcome to Film Forward, everybody. We are gearing up for the 2020 Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. And today we are honored to be joined by Miss Simone Baptiste. She is the director of the short film $16,000, which will be playing as a part of the No Joke block. That's no with a K. Uh, Miss Simone, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Nicholas. I'm so excited to show this film to another audience. Filmmakers this year, we're getting the rough end of the you know stick, I guess. It's basically uh, show virtually or don't show at all, it seems to be. We are getting the short end of the stick this year. It's like, we can't make money and we can't screen our stuff. It's uh, it's rough. It's rough oh, year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, we shall persevere. Tell us a little bit about this really fun, creative, very unique short film you have, $16,000. Tell the audience about it. Sure. Uh, yeah, $16,000. It is a comedy short. It is about reparations, but it is not necessarily making fun of reparations. Basically, we wanted to make the conversation around reparations to be something that was approachable, something that that people could engage with without, you know, fully full stop, just turning off their ears to the conversation, which happens quite often, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we went into this project, Brodie Reed and Ellington Wells, they're comedians in LA. I've met them through my own ventures into comedy booking. And we got together mainly because we wanted to make something. And at the time, you know, the 2020 primary race for the Democratic Party was really ramping up. We had a lot of people saying, you know, whether they were pro-reparations um, or not pro-reparations or using it as a bargaining chip to try to get the Black vote. And we were, you know, just a little disturbed by that, maybe a lot of it disturbed by that. And that's kind mm -hmm. of where we came upon the subject matter. We It was a way for us to take the narrative back and then kind of show what reparations would look like if it were only just a check and if that check was for the lowest amount it could possibly be. And that's kind of where we found the humor in this subject. But we are very pro-reparations. We are pro-reparations uh, being more of a transformative piece of legislation that can uplift the Black community and not just be reduced to a monetary value um, of a check that I don't believe would build wealth in the Black community as a whole. Right. As you said, you know, the film is wall-to-wall -wall laughs. It's, it's really well-written, really well-performed. But talk to us about your perspective on using comedy as an avenue to tackle this very serious subject, which the device of using comedy is always a great tool. Uh, and, and it works really well in this piece. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the, the co-writers, Ellington Wells, who also co-stars, she put it very well when we did a talk about the film recently, you know, using comedy to depict the Black experience is 
part of a long-lived tradition of Black people being able to be understood. And in this case, you know, going into this project, we did a lot of research. We found various articles saying how against reparations the majority of white people are. And I think half of that has to do with the lack of understanding about what reparations are. And I think this was just a way to bridge that gap. And I'm a part of activist spaces. I'm a democratic socialist. And I can even say on the left, there is a division between those who are pro and those who are against reparations. And it comes from the same, you know, level of misunderstanding, I think, that the general public might have. But I think, you know, when we use comedy to talk about this subject, it definitely disarms people. It makes people, you know, realize that, you know, we're not just demanding something. We are trying to make you understand why it is needed. And I think that we achieved that pretty well in this film, even though it is wall-to-wall laughs. I think uh, people walk away understanding what the original intent is. Absolutely. Absolutely. You guys pull it off great. The chemistry between Ellington and Brody is just really intoxicating. I could have watched them on screen together for another three hours. (laughs) Talk to us about your working relationship with them and how you guys built these characters and kind of conceptualize this whole thing together because they they co-wrote it together as well, right? Yes. The real life friendship that exists definitely translated to the screen and all of us are super close with each other. And so I think when we were going into making this project, it allowed for us to kind of understand each other better and take more risks when we were, you know, on set. And I think, um, you know, Brody and Ellington being siblings is, yeah, I could honestly watch that as well for another three hours too. I also heard that from several other people. It just works because they are such goofballs in real life. But I think, you know, I really kind of pushed both of them to be a little bit opposite of what they are. Um, I think Ellington in in real life is probably a bit more reserved and Brody's a little bit more, you know, outgoing and outspoken. They're both funny people, but I kind of had them swap and and basically, um, you know, between takes, making sure Ellington knew that she was supposed to be a little bit more over the top than Brody and just, you know, marinated in what that became, which was you know, comedy gold. It was really fun. Yeah, no, they're, they are great. I hope to see more with them on screen together soon. Talk to us a bit about you, you know, before this film, you were very active as a producer and a writer, but this was your directorial debut and it's a very impressive one. What was it like stepping into the director's chair for the first time? Stepping into the director's chair, it was something that I wasn't afraid of doing. You know, with my, um, I guess my day job as a writer-producer, I do step into directing quite often, but it usually is with things that are unscripted or things that I'll script and it's, you know, short little bites because that's like kind of the nature of working with a major network. But coming into this, I felt comfortable to step into that role because I knew that being a creative, but also being an activist, this was a project that was right up my alley. Uh, Also having produced comedy shows for several years and basically compiling lineups of people that were just really complimentary of each other, really funny people. I knew that I could stack my film, my cast with those same people and achieve something great. And so 
you know, I definitely put a lot of trust in the people that I brought into the other roles in the film because I knew their comedy. I knew them very well and I knew how they would fit into each role that Brody and Ellington wrote into the script. So I just felt like I might have been the only person to take on this project and have this result. But that doesn't go without saying it is very difficult to find a crew that will support a female director. Definitely, you know, difficult to find a crew that would support a woman of color stepping into her first directorial debut. But I was very lucky and I had a lot of great people working alongside me that not only respected me, but they also you know, elevated the project with what they brought to the table. So I just feel like this production was a big hug and it was like very much a great experience for me and for others who were involved. That's so great to hear. And I didn't see you in action on set, but you're a natural is all I'm going to say. So I hope (laughs) you you. just keep making more stuff and keep sharing it with us because I can't say enough how much I love this film. And, you know, sometimes when you, when I'm having a bad day, Mm -hmm. I just watch your movie and it it cheers me up a little bit. That's awesome. It's such a joy to be able to finish something and finally like hear people's reactions. I, you know, our very first film festival was in LA at the Pan-African Film Festival and like black audiences are usually a very tough crowd. And so I was just Mm -hmm. like very interested to see how they reacted and like literally hearing belly laughs and, you know, hearing people literally like shouting exclamations at the screen. I was like, okay, we did it. Like we did what we wanted to do here because I don't know if you're familiar with the Pan-African Film Festival, but it's a festival that was founded by Danny Glover. Yeah, we, yeah. we love them. Okay. We love them. Awesome. Yeah. And it takes place at the old Magic Johnson Theater, which obviously is notorious for people like being loud and, you know, enjoying cinema the way it should be enjoyed. <laughs> basically yeah. and so I um I was very excited to debut there and then also was shocked to win there and I was you know just ecstatic that was basically the perfect way to start our festival journey but you never know how it's gonna end up and I feel like I have a good comedic timing because of my work in the comedy space, but you just never know if it's all going to come together at the end of the day, which I'm happy that it did. And I'm happy that, you know, more people will get to enjoy it and also learn a little bit about reparations in the process. Absolutely. Let's touch real quick on, you know, you talked about how you're a comedy booker. How did you get into that? And how did that kind of translate into you know, starting to work in film and television. When I first moved out to LA, it was really difficult to find a space, you know, or find cool things that were happening. And it seems like it'd be very easy, but it really isn't because, you know, there are so many tourist traps and like things that just don't feel rooted in community. And comedy ended up being that one thing where I was like, okay, this is great. Like, this is something inexpensive to go and do and have fun and watch different comedians. And eventually I turned that passion uh, of just like enjoying comedy into creating a web series with several different comedians from the alt comedy scene. And shout out to Best Fish Taco, uh, Loud Village at Best Fish Taco. That was really like the first introduction that I had to the alt comedy scene. And that's in Los Feliz. And I Basically, through this web series, I was like, okay, well, this is great. It was an animated storytelling show. And basically, we 
did our run. We did about five episodes of that. Uh, that included people like Whitmer Thomas, Brandon Wardell, Alice Wetterland, Dave Ross. These are all like really amazing people that I admire and respect. And then once we ran out of money, we we're like, well, should we stop doing this or should we just turn it into a live show? And so we turned it into a live show. And then from there on out, I just started getting asked to do other shows and produce other shows. And it's a rarity to have a comedy show booker that isn't a comic. And I think it's very coveted to have a booker that's not a comic. <laughs> and so I was getting hit up left and right to do different shows. And that's kind of how that started. That's that's so cool. I thought you were a comic when I saw that you were a comedy booker because every comedy booker I know is a comic. Exactly. Yeah. And I was like, I was like searching online for you know your stand-up stuff and I was like where is it <laughs> you're not gonna find it no I have never have done stand-up in my life but you know it's it's not like without saying like I think there needs to be more comedy show bookers uh that aren't comedians because you know I was not biased I was like okay good people are gonna get up at this show <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and a diverse set of people will be getting up at this show and for a long time the alt comedy scene it was very common and I mean and sometimes it's still common to see lineups that aren't very inclusive mm-hmm. and I went into that space with the mindset that I was not going to operate in that way and I want to see a show where Like the audience can be diverse and everyone in the audience can relate to a different comedian that's booked on the show. And I just feel like if you don't have that diversity, even in your booking process, you're not speaking to, you know, the community at large. You're speaking to one very narrow minded kind of view. And so I, you know, I basically uh, jumped onto this weekly show Sauce that used to be at DeSano Pizza Bakery in East Hollywood And we would, you know, people would be shocked because I would have, you know, more than one black person on a lineup, more than one woman on a lineup, which sounds really, you know, rudimentary, but that's how it was. And people enjoyed the fact that we were a diverse show. And then other shows started following suit, which is absolutely what I hoped for. I don't think that, uh, you know, it shouldn't just be one show. It should be all shows that include people and don't kind of keep to this narrow-minded view of what how a comedy show should be run. And then after that, I jumped onto The New Negroes, which has Baron Vaughn and Open Mike Eagle as the host. And it was the live version of their Comedy Central show. And that one was um, a show that featured all Black comedians, which was really dope and just created a space, you know. I think it was really fun. Absolutely. That's great. I love it. Real quick, before we take our break, you know, as we were talking about earlier, as you mentioned, you know, reparations for both African-Americans and uh, indigenous people are a part of the conversation now kind of more than they ever have been, it feels like, at least in our lifetime. Do you think, as you were talking about the Democratic primary, some people, you know, you see people for it, you see people against it, uh, the people for it. I want to get your opinion you know, lip service or legitimate possibility for reparations in our near future? In our near future, uh, I wish I knew that question, but I'm going to answer that question. But, you know, there is a 
uprising right now. Um, it's making a lot of gains in the betterment of the lives of Black people. And reparations, it is restitution for any group, really, that has had a crime committed against them. And I think, you know, when we talk about it, this is not exclusive to just African Americans. There have been other groups that have received reparations in this country. Mm -hmm. And you know, going forward, we should expand our view of what slavery was. And slavery was a global event. It was, you know, taking African peoples all across the world to profit off of their free labor. And I think that when we talk about reparations for slavery, we're talking about all descendants of slaves globally, <laughs> all across the African diaspora. Right. You know, once you broaden it out like that, it really paints a picture of what slavery was. I think, you know, here in the United States, it was, you know, we live in the same country where slavery took place, whereas a lot of other European countries, they exported that out. And, you know, it took place in their colonies in the Caribbean or, you know, in other places that it wasn't right in people's faces. And I think because our country has this hateful past and hateful origin, it's really difficult for people here to understand why reparations is still needed for the crime of slavery. And I think we would have a better shot of getting reparations if we made it a global reparations, if we had a UN debate about the effects of African slavery, the African slave trade all across the world, because it seems like it's hard to get footing in a country where you have a lot of people who are right wing and you have a lot of people who don't, you know, don't even see uh, descendants of slaves as full human beings still. Right. And so I think, yeah, it's really difficult to say. First and foremost, uh, the Black community should have some concrete demands for what they would want to see reparations be. But I also think we should be in solidarity with descendants of slaves all across the world. It's a beautiful perspective, Simone. We could talk about this for a uh, a lot more time, but unfortunately, we got to take a break. Yes. Real quick, before we do, tell the audience where they can find you, where they can find your film, where they can follow you guys. You can find the film's pages at 16K Film on every platform. And you can find me on Twitter at Sim underscore de Beauvoir. And uh, that's S Y M, which a lot of people don't know that it's uh, Simone like Raven Simone, because my mom was obsessed with uh, Raven Simone when I was growing up. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll just say you can watch her film $16,000 as a part of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. It will be in the No Joke block, along with five other hilarious shorts, and it will be available at LADFF.com starting August 4th. Do not miss it. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Simone is going to help us out with our favorite segment, Gimme Three. The Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival will be available to a worldwide audience this year. Due to the global pandemic, our annual in-person event is postponed, but you can still view our incredible program online. From August 4th through August 31st, visit LADFF.com to rent our curated film blocks, or you can buy a VIP pass, which gives you access to our entire program for the month. We have over 50 films from 17 different countries, comedy, thriller, drama, musicals, docs, we've got something for everybody. So check out the 7th Annual Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival, 
starting August 4th exclusively at LADFF.com. All right, we are back on Film Forward here. We are chatting with Simone Baptiste, and she is about to give us three films that have inspired her and inspired her work. Miss Baptiste, let's get your first one. All right. First one, Oscar winning, Kathy Bates in Misery. Misery is maybe one of the best, I mean, besides The Shining, best adaptation of a Stephen King book. And if you haven't watched it, I believe it's on Hulu right now. Um, I've just rewatched it recently, even though I've seen it maybe a gazillion times. But this film really gets, you know, that levity in times of crisis. I think uh, Kathy Bates really just lights up the screen, even though she is a psychotic serial killer. (laughs) She is nothing short of incredible in this movie. And I saw this movie recently for the first time. Oh, really? (laughs) Uh, It it had been on my list for years and years, and I finally got to it, and good God. (laughs) I had just the right amount of weed to make it a borderline horrifying experience but (laughs) in a way that was very enjoyable at the same time (laughs) oh yeah i think um you know i just love her delivery of these like really weird idioms and stuff uh you know I think uh, one of them, you cock a duty, like, oh my God. I, I don't know <laughs> if anyone else could deliver that line and still be terrifying, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Which, which she says, you silly Billy. You're just like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great stuff. Yeah. And Rob Reiner, he, like, Rob Reiner really does Stephen King well. Like, with this movie and with Stand By Me, he really can get to the heart of King. Yeah. Unlike unlike most filmmakers do. I I agree. Maybe his perspective as an actor as well, like helps him in that way. And, you know, I just think it is a piece of cinema gold. I think that this should be in the Hall of Fame of, you know, of films that kind of toe that line. You know, there's a great balance here. I don't think it's not like a um, slasher film or anything like that. It's definitely a good balance of thriller and horror and and it just delivers on everything. And comedy. And like, comedy. There's laughter. Yes, <laughs> there's a lot of laughter. Misery. Excellent first choice. Watch and speaking misery. of comedy. Yeah. <laughs> speaking of comedy, I think Step Brothers is, it's basically the top of the top. I don't know if anyone has topped that movie with the depiction of siblings, step-siblings, the ensemble cast with everyone just being hard-hitters, hard-hitting comedians, delivery on everything is perfection in this film. John C. Riley, I'll watch him in anything, but I'll definitely watch him in this film about 200 more times. He is awesome. (laughs) So what are your thoughts on Step Brothers? Uh, I agree. I mean, John C. Riley can do no wrong. Like you said, the whole the whole cast is just banger. And the first time I saw this movie, I was like, "This is so stupid." <laughs> but I was, I but I couldn't stop laughing. You know, it's just like it just continues to raise the stakes on ridiculous, mm-hmm. but it works in every every step of the way. It works. Yeah, I I mean, there's so many quotable moments that I just find myself saying all the time. You know, I think this film, it just is perfect. I think I always, you know, always, always wanted to see this kind of brother relationship on screen where you have grown ass adults 
being children. It's amazing. I don't know if anybody besides Will Ferrell and John C. Riley could pull off the like the adult baby, <laughs> you know, thing as well as as well as they did. And if you haven't seen it, watch it immediately after listening to this podcast. All right, Miss Baptiste, your third and final. Okay, so a lot of people have made mention that I could have possibly been inspired by Boots Riley in my film, and they're absolutely right. I love Boots Riley. I love everything he's done with Sorry to Bother You. It is perfection. It is a socialist wet dream. It is the perfect film. And I think that it was unexpected. I went into watching this film really not knowing what it was going to be. Two years ago, I got lucky. I got invited to a screening at the Ace uh, where the cast was there. And I just went in blind. And I think, you know, sometimes that's the best movie going experience, really just having no expectation. But I went in completely blind. And this film surprised me. And it was an advanced screening. So I literally just like kept my mouth shut for two months because my husband is also a socialist. And I didn't want him to know this was like a socialist film, um, a workers rights kind of film. I, I yeah. was so hard to keep my mouth shut for that amount of time. I made him go into the screen, like to the regular screening blind. And he is obsessed as well. I think I think everyone on the left, uh, for the most part, in like leftist spaces, love this film because it does a great job through, you know, comedy, through just great storytelling of having this subversive workers' rights kind of plot line, un- like pro-union kind of plot. I just think it was beautiful. I think it was a great film. Yeah, I I agree. I I saw it in theater and loved it, and then uh, I recently rewatched it while this pandemic was going on, and it hit just as hard, if not harder. Yeah, you know, just because I think we can all you know relate to. Uh, you know, a little bit of what's going on in the film. We can all relate to it now. Oh, yeah. I mean, worry-free. Like, I mean, it was obvious mm-hmm. back then that that was Amazon. But have you seen yeah. any of Amazon's recent commercials where they literally are worry-free commercials during this pandemic? Yeah. It's really it's ridiculous. It's just crazy. Yeah. It's just crazy. I love when films are able to kind of, like, really know like really be self-aware and know kind of what time we're in and what direction we're going in. And I think this film really does that because there has been a movement of workers in this country over the past couple of years and people understanding that they, they are human beings, they have rights and, you know, a lot of their rights in the workplace have been stripped away and, Honestly, this this film couldn't have come at a more perfect time. Between that and between the identity of Cash in the film and him having to put on a white voice in order to rise the ranks, that's so you know un, undeniably true for the Black experience yeah. in this country. If, if you want to rise the ranks, you really have to disassociate. You have to you know, not be yourself. And I hope that, you know, with the recent uprisings and stuff, people are taking more notice, but I hope that corporations aren't going to have like kind of a faux, uh, you know, (laughs) revolution inside of their walls because they're still corporations. They're still exploitative. What happens is you have essentially stunted 
the growth of ind- like of black individuals at your at your company and what I like to see and what has been happening is people who are ex-employees speaking out about their treatment. And you really have to wonder why this didn't happen sooner. I think it's just so cool that Boots Riley was right on time with this film. <laughs> but it's yeah. I, there's been, you know, centuries of anguish at all turns for the Black community. This film perfectly captured what it means to, to try to be successful as a Black person in a very white space, in a white world, and then also the overall experience for the working class and how the working class is exploited by their workplace. I couldn't agree more, yeah. If you... Listeners have not seen it, or even if you have seen it, I would say watching it right now is a deft experience mm-hmm. and extremely necessary. And goddamn, the cast is just fucking Yeah, stacked. I mean, <laughs> there's no one in that cast that I don't love, and uh, that's like yeah. really hard to do. When I went in blind the first time, I really didn't even know David Cross and Patton Oswalt were doing those voices. I was like, oh my god, like I, it was a shock to me <laughs> because I just literally yeah. just, I had gone on IMDb. I hadn't done any research. And then I was like, oh my God, this is perfect. Yeah. And the whole cast is just stacked. I love that Danny Glover is in it as well. And he's been a great advocate over his you know, career uh, for these kinds of issues and topics. And he also was in Last Black Man in San Francisco, which, you know, I think he's really an advocate for uh, films that are telling different stories for the Black community. And obviously through his work with the Pan-African Film Festival too, like he's just been a lifelong advocate for these kinds of things. So it was really great to see on screen. That's a great Bay Area triple feature uh, (laughs) is uh, Sorry to Bother You, Last Black Man in San Francisco, and Blind Spotting, Mm -hmm. which I think all came out maybe in the same year or within two years of each other. Yeah, um, really close together for sure. But th- those are three films that are just mind-blowingly good and, in my humble opinion, didn't get enough credit as they deserved. Mm-hmm. It is unfortunate that it is so difficult to get these kinds of projects made where they're, they might not be so mainstream. Like, I don't believe Sorry to Bother You was a mainstream hit, but it definitely was a hit for the people that it needed to be a hit for. And I think that's yeah. the most yeah. important thing. I think we should stop making things with the goal of profit and start making things with the goal of cultural consciousness and, you know, and uplifting um, marginalized voices. I think that should be, you know, every filmmaker's goal. That's what art is supposed to do, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, but in these days, you never know. (laughs) Like, it seems like (laughs) Uh, maybe an algorithm will tell me what my next film will be. Just kidding. (laughs) But that's kind of like uh, where I'm at. I want to make stuff like this. I want to continue making something that I'll feel good about because at the end of the day, I only have to impress myself and that's it. So it's a good way to live. Absolutely. (laughs) We hope you keep doing it, Simone. Three excellent choices. And thank you for being here. Thank you for making your film. We just can't say it enough. We love it. Well, thank you so much, Nicholas. I am so happy to have been on this podcast. Keep doing what you're doing. That's great. Watch $16,000. It is starting August 4th at LADFF.com. It's a part of the No Joke block. That's no with a K. And yeah, thanks again for being here. And thank you all for listening to Film Forward. We will catch you next time. Our recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru, and yours truly. 
Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, and you'll hear us next time.